0: Hello, welcome to the official launch of the Boston Herald podcast. My name is Harold Lapidus. You may know me from my days as the Bob Dylan Examiner, or possibly as the author of Friends and Other Strangers, Bob Dylan Examined, or maybe for my articles for No Depression and other media, and maybe you don't know me at all. However you got here, welcome. This is episode one. There's a practice episode I numbered zero because it's not very good, but I just wanted to do one podcast to get the hang of it. You can check it out if you like, but don't expect too much. I recently attended the first-ever World of Bob Dylan Symposium in Tulsa, Oklahoma, official home of the Bob Dylan archives, a little over a month ago. I gave a speech connecting Bob Dylan and Elvis Presley via the 1978 album Street Legal, and that will be the focus of my next podcast, probably in two weeks. Today, I'll be talking about some big news in the Bob Dylan community, namely Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder Review movie, the 14 CD box set from the same 1975 tour. But first, a few words about Echo in the Canyon, a new documentary about the Laurel Canyon music scene circa 1965 to 1967. This is the pre Joni Mitchell era, so don't bother complaining that she's not in the movie. It was made by Andrew Slater, formerly of Capitol Records, and Jacob Dylan of The Wallflowers. As I said, the film is a tribute to the Laurel Canyon music scene when bands like the Beach Boys, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, the Mamas and the Papas, and other bands lived near each other, shared their music, and in turn inspired each other. Jacob, with some help from Regina Spector, Beck, Nora Jones, Fiona Apple, Cat Power, and Jade Castrinos, covered songs from that era either on stage or in the studio. Among those interviewed were Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, Jackson Brown, Brian Wilson, Roger McGuinn, Michelle Phillips, John Sebastian, Lou Adler, Tom Petty in one of his last filmed interviews, and separately, Crosby, Stills, and Nash with an uncredited and incredibly cool Neil Young on a couple of songs. The reason the film worked for me was because Jacob Dylan, who has probably known many of these artists from childhood, put the interviewees at ease. Even if you know most of these stories, it's nice to hear them again, and you certainly haven't heard all of these stories, certainly with not this type of candor. Plus, there's some cool archival footage as well. A couple of weekends ago, Dylan, Slater, and the Echo in the Canyons band appeared at four viewings in the Boston area. After the show I attended at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline on the Sunday, there was a Q&A with Slater and Dylan, followed by a four-song set. Jacob led the band in cover versions of Dedicated to the One I Love and Go Where You Want to Go by Way of the Mamas and the Papas, No Matter What You Do by the band Love with Arthur Lee, who Jacob explained did not fit into the film but deserved to be acknowledged, and ending with a tribute to the late great Tom Petty with a cover of the waiting. The soundtrack, mostly from the studio performances, can now be streamed. It is also available on CD, and eventually it'll be out on vinyl. So check it out. On to the Rolling Thunder Review. A lot has been written about the Rolling Thunder Review, but one thing that seems to be missing from some of the articles I've read is the excitement. I was growing up on Long Island at the time. It was the time of Planet Waves and Blood on the Tracks and Tour 74, and Dylan was back after eight years off the road, and he was just playing these places with very little advance notice with Joan Baez soon after Diamonds and Rust had been recorded, Roger McGuinn, uh, Johnny Mitchell joined after a while, Mick Ronson, Bowie's guitarist, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Ronnie Blakely, fresh off the movie Nashville. And the whole feeling of the tour was kind of punk rock. There was no advance warning, it was back to basics, it was anti-corporate. And he was also previewing his new album. So I'd be up in my room, trying to do homework and listening to WAW at the same time. I was wondering how I would get tickets to this if indeed the tour got anywhere near where I lived. I didn't have a car, I didn't know how I would get tickets, but that didn't stop me from hoping after a few early shows in smaller theaters, he started playing bigger places and then people started to complain. Didn't Dylan say he was only playing smaller places? People just like to complain, I guess. But uh, the final night of the first leg of the tour was at Madison Square Garden on my birthday in December. It was the night of the hurricane, and there was an ad in the New York Times saying that tickets were only available at the box office, and they'd go on sale on the Monday morning, December 1st. My parents allowed me to skip school and take the train into New York. And when I went to the show, I brought a little tape recorder where I taped every act up to the song Hurricane, because that's when I had to leave to get home. If I didn't take that train, I wouldn't get another one until 3.30 in the morning, and my parents weren't up for that. I go into great detail into this uh, escapade in my book if you're interested. In 1975, who could have foreseen that there'd be something called compact discs, and there'd be 14 of them in a box, and you can listen to them in soundboard quality? One of the advantages of doing what I do is that I often get advanced copies of Dylan's albums so I can review them by street date that didn't happen this time, and it's kind of a, a blessing in a way because I was so busy with the Dylan Symposium and other things. Luckily, I'm almost done listening to the entire thing. It wouldn't be a Bob Dylan album without people complaining about something. In this case, uh, some fans are complaining about how it only includes a Dylan set and not Joan Baez, Roger McGuinn, Joni Mitchell, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, T-Bone Burnett, and everybody else. What I have to say about that is, first of all, it would be a legal nightmare to get everyone's consent to be on this box set. And it would make it unruly as well. I mean, 14 CDs is a lot. How about uh, 28 CDs? But on top of that, it is possible to listen to some of the complete Rolling Thunder shows legally. There's an app you can get called Wolfgang's, formerly Wolfgang's Vault which takes care of the Bill Graham archives. Here I'm talking about Bill Graham the promoter, not Bill Graham the religious guy, even though both of them appear in Scorsese's documentary. Thanks to Graham, all of these shows were professionally recorded. Now if you have the app, you can listen to the Halloween show in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the November 2nd show in Lowell, not the whole thing. The end of the show was not captured. November 11th in Waterbury, Connecticut, December 4th in Montreal, the Dylan set is available on the box set, but here you get to hear the whole thing. And the night of the hurricane show on December 8th, the night I went. On these recordings, the tape ran out during some of the songs, but if you really want to know what the Rolling Thunder tour was like, that's the way to go. And you may have to pay a little for it, but don't complain. So for on the official CD release, the rehearsals on discs 1 through 3 and the rarities on disc 14, That's the kind of oral porn that Dylan fans lust after. There's plenty of clips in the Scorsese film of the rehearsals. You can hear one verse of She Belongs to Me where Dylan's making up the words as he goes along. It's hard to even know what song it is, but when you listen to the CD, you can hear the entire take. You can see that he's rewriting it as he goes along. He's just being mischievous, trying to impress himself and others with his clever wordplay. Throughout the discs, they're uh, working on arrangements. They do rare cover versions. He's challenging himself and others, and he's having fun. I mean, could you even imagine something like this being released 45 years ago? So if you're interested in the creative process, these discs are essential listening. However, if that's not your cup of tea, then all the Dylan tracks from the five shows included are undeniably superb. This Dylan's on fire. He's alternately wildly animated and aggressive in the electric sets, intense yet sensitive in the solo sets and playful with the Baez duets. This is Dylan Comes Alive just weeks before Frampton did. This box set accentuates how inadequate the original Rolling Thunder Review bootleg series version was. The sequencing made no sense and essential songs were left off. The opening when I paint my masterpiece, many Joan Baez duets including the gorgeous Wild Mountain Time and Never Let Me Go and the finale of This Land Is Your Land, with everyone joining in. These songs were probably excluded originally due to contractual issues, but five complete Dylan-related concerts are here and presented as they should be. The only problem I had was getting ready to eject the CDs after the song ISIS, since that's when intermission occurred. But maybe that's just me. Anyway, with what I've listened to so far, it's a fascinating document. The excitement is palatable, with Dylan so into it, so liberated. He's intense, but not in the combative way he was almost a decade before, scorching the ground with the hawks behind him, but it's more celebratory, more confident. Interestingly, by opening his sets with When I Pay My Masterpiece, he was declaring that he felt his best work was yet to come, and he followed it with It Ain't Me Babe, reminding the listener that he wasn't going to do what you'd expect him to do. He was also relishing the ability to preview six of the nine songs on his soon-to-be-released album, Desire. It was breathtaking to behold if you were there. You knew you, you were experiencing something magical at the time, never to be repeated. I remember when I finally got the Desire album the following January, being somewhat disappointed, actually, since I was listening to the Maxhall tapes I made of the Night of the Hurricane show. Everything on the album paled next to the live versions I witnessed. Isis in particular, what I thought was the standout track, was nothing like, like Dylan was center stage at the Garden, without his guitar, wide-eyed and animated, which was evident even from my nosebleed seats. On Desire, it was Dylan slowed down, with a more sturdy version on piano. Of course, I soon loved this version just as much for different reasons, but that's why you always had to witness Dylan live. As John Lennon used to say, should have been there. Now on to the Scorsese Rolling Thunder film. So much has been written about this that I hope to focus on some things that have not been covered elsewhere as far as I know, although I've only read a few of the reports, yet it's an occupational hazard to be bombarded with Dylan News. In fact, I share a lot of it myself on social media without even having read it. I mean, who has time for all this nonsense? Anyway, beforehand, all I knew about the film was what a friend told me, that there was a gimmick, and elsewhere I heard that there was some storyline that may have been made up. But I wanted to be fooled. I wanted to not know anything beforehand. After my first viewing, I did some research just to know enough that I'd been had. I loved it the first time, and it was even more fascinating the second time around. Then the more I thought about it, yet another layer was peeled off. While this film has been in the works for many years, I wonder when this particular storyline manifested itself, but more on that later. It was a relief that I liked this movie, since I'm not that much a fan of Scorsese's music rock documentaries as great as the last waltz was i still have problems with some of the decisions the reason no direction home worked at all was because of the footage shot by d.a pennebaker and others and the volume enhanced booze during the newport footage never sat well with me and the unsatisfying george harrison doc living in the material world left out so much of his life and career it begs for a more complete documentary of the former uh, wilbury however here Scorsese succeeds. By purposefully playing with the truth, like the Dylan-ish Todd Haynes film, I'm Not There, it really makes you think. It makes you question everything, like a great Dylan song. It also fits alongside other Dylan films like Ronaldo and Clara, Unmasked, and Anonymous. It takes a look at celebrity culture, particularly of Dylan, and shows it through a Cuisinart. Now I'm going to add a few additional observations. In the film, Dylan talks about wearing masks. In the song, The Man in the Long Black Coat, from Oh Mercy, he describes this person as someone with a face like a mask. Dylan has always worn masks, and now he looks like that masked man. You can't help but study the lines on his face. He sort of quotes Oscar Wilde about a masked man telling the truth. However, we are never sure when he's telling the truth throughout the film, or indeed his entire career, or if he's even wearing his Bob Dylan mask but not giving credit where credit was due in the film. Everyone from cameraman Howard Alk to musicians Rob Stoner, Luther Ricks, Mick Ronson, and T-Bone Burnett have been written about by those exposing the fraudulent claims in this, quote, fever dream, unquote. It may not be much consolation for those involved, but as I watched the movie, I did tend to focus on, for instance, Rob Stoner locking eyes with Dylan while leading Guam, the Rolling Thunder Band. And if you didn't know who filmed the excellent live footage, By reading all these articles, you certainly do now. Also impressive was the percussion by Luther Ricks and Howie Wyeth, often accentuating Dylan's lyrics, especially when galloping and knocking was necessary. There were also some transient moments to consider, like when Dylan is performing Isis. Not quite sure what to do with his hands, he humorously imitates Mick Jagger for a moment around the line the dividing line ran through the center of town. It's touching how the film compliments, in particular, Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. We all know the history with Baez, but Dylan and Mitchell would often tease each other in different ways. For instance, when David Geffen was hosting a listening party for the two new albums on his label, Planet Waves and Court and Spark, after Dylan's album finished playing, he pretended to fall asleep. If Joni had pigtails, there's no doubt Bob would be pulling at them. Mitchell's take on her almost finished song, Coyote, at Gordon Lightfoot's place with the ink still wet on the page is easily one of the highlights of the film. And yes, there is a connection between Bob Dylan and Gene Simmons, but it's not the one depicted in the film. In 1991, Gene Simmons called up Bob Dylan's management and asked if he could write a song with Bob. Dylan showed up and said, I'll see you later that evening. They wrote a song called Waiting for the Morning Light, which was included on Gene Simmons' 2004 album, Asshole. Supposedly, Dylan said to Gene, Hey, you write the words. And Gene's response was, Hey, that's your job. So, yes, in some ways, there is a connection. And has anyone researched the Heinrich Grief Award supposedly given to Van Dorp? Somebody must have. Anyway grief was a german actor and activist a communist who left germany when the nazis took over and it was a real award thus giving out in 1989 although i don't see van dorps name listed anywhere as recipient nudge nudge wink wink grin grin with all the political figures that appear in the film including presidents nixon ford and carter it's a shame scorsese didn't connect dylan's choice of performing the lonesome death of hattie carroll in 1975 with disgraced former Vice President and Maryland Governor, Spiro T. Agnew, and the song's depiction of the corruption in the politics of Maryland. Speaking of which, even though this film has been in the works for many a long year, I wonder when the fake news aspect became part of the storyline. Of course, Dylan has been putting people on since before he arrived in Greenwich Village, but this film takes it all to a whole other level. Some will just take this as fact, while others will question everything. In some ways, that's a shame. Like listening to Dylan's music, sometimes the detective work of fans and scholars overshadows the actual art. When I started listening to Dylan in earnest, not long before 1975's Rolling Thunder tour, I let the words and music and emotions wash over me. Once I realized, however, that there was much more to his art than pretty words, there was no going back. It is fortunate that we have this music and footage, no matter how it's being packaged. So many of the players here are no longer with us. Jacques Levy, Ruben Carter, Allen Ginsberg, Mick Ronson, childhood friend Larry Keegan, producer Don DeVito, L.A. Johnson. But we're still here, and so is Dylan. And I'm grateful to be living in the same world in which he inhabits. Thanks for listening. This has been Harold Lapidus with the Boston Herald Podcast. Please feel free to share this with your friends and see you in a couple of weeks.